Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects podcast. Today with cyber incident response. But before we run into our show topic, let me hand over to Chris to introduce himself. Hey, Chris, great to see you on the show again. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Chris Goosen. Uh, great to, to have you here with us again. And uh, we're super excited today because we get to speak to Fran again. Fran is a returning uh, guest on the show, an old friend of the show and returning guest. Fran, thank you so much for making the time to, to join us uh, early in your morning, I think. Thank you so much for having me. This is always a blast and love speaking with you guys. <laughs> Thanks. We, you know, we like to have fun uh, on the show as well. And, but sometimes we do try and be somewhat serious. And, and, and I think that kind of speaks to a little bit about the idea behind this episode, right? I, mm. um, I was listening to, you know, sometimes, and this is probably quite weird, but I can never get used to listening to myself. Like it's such a weird thing, but, um, occasionally, uh, I listen to our our episodes when I'm driving. It's it's something. It's like a you know we we go through this production uh, process. You know after we record, where things get ed- get edited and get published and all of that. And I listen to everything. I mean, we all do listen to everything multiple mm. times during that that process. But it's weird. Like a week or two later, if I, I find myself kind of tuning into the latest show again, just to kind of listen to it again with fresh ears, if you will. And I was listening to the, um, the recent exchange episode that we, that we did. Um, and one of the things that kind of dawned on me and, uh, you know, you may recall, listeners may recall that, um, I said that, uh, in the show, I said that, uh, having a head in the sand sort of posture about your security is no longer acceptable. And, and Nick challenged me on that. Um, and something that kind of dawned on me was, we talk about readiness and cyber readiness um, all the time on the show and how it's only a matter of time, you know, before a breach will occur. It's not about, you know, if, it's about when. Um, but we've never really sort of dug deeper into what does that mean? What does cyber readiness mean? And and while I was thinking about that, of course, um, my my favorite friend, Fran, his name popped into my head. I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to Fran and let's see if we can get Fran on the show to come talk to us about sort of cyber readiness and, and, and incident response as well, because I think those two things go so well together and hand in hand, right? It's, it's good to, you have to be ready and anticipate, mm. but I think you also need to um, know what to do once something, once or if something uh, happens, right? Uh, again, we, we see the media going crazy all the time now. I mean, here in Australia, it's just, it's just bonkers at the moment with some of these some of these breaches yeah. and uh, that have been going on and and you know the, the the funny thing is like the fallout from it is is like I've never seen before right like I, I you know I lived in the in the US for a long time and I mean a lot of the stuff that happens in America you don't even it doesn't even make the news right you know mm. colonial pipeline like maybe that made some of the news outlets but really like the stuff's happening every day and and it doesn't even really make the mainstream media anymore but over here, you know, one telco gets hacked, and man, it's it's like on everyone's lips, right? And and I mean, they're pushing, you know, all these new bills through 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 Parliament, and and there's all these new sort of cyber offensive programs now being stood up to, you know, hack the hackers, and um, it's nuts, right? So very topical, um, but I I still think, and I get the sense from a lot of customers that. Um, maybe this isn't something that they think about, right? They think about, well, how do we patch? They think about all that kind of stuff. But what about cyber readiness? Um, mm. So, so Fran, I guess to, to kind of kick off, um, if I'm an organization and I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I, um, how do I know if I'm, if I'm ready? What are those things um, potentially that I should be kind of thinking about, whether they are procedural things or, um, professional services or, or things like that. I mean, you know, where do, where do I even start? Sure. Yeah, I think the important thing here for most organizations is to work with potentially another organization who has some experience uh, helping organizations across the different industries to actually review their incident response program and actually test it in a scenario. Uh, what mm-hmm. I would recommend is that you partner with an organization who can help you understand what what is my general like cyber risk 
and what things should I be focusing on in order to uh, be able to respond appropriately. Something that you mentioned a bit earlier prior to recording, Chris, was uh, the concept of a tabletop exercise, which is often very eye-opening to both technical and executive and, and other leaders within the organization because it puts you in a scenario where you literally have an incident response expert in a room running you through an exercise about what would you do in this scenario and how would you respond? And often what you see in those uh, tabletop exercises is that a lot of organizations maybe know what they'll do from a technical perspective, vaguely, not fully, but they'll, they'll kind of understand what to do from a technical perspective, but they're often not ready to engage <clears throat> things like the press or the media. Uh, often we see organizations who have spent significant amounts of time planning on how to do technical incident response, which we should certainly talk about, but not, hey, how do I communicate to my employees about something going bad? Um, what happens if I communicate to my employees and that gets leaked to the press? How are we communicating with the press? Who's communicating with the press? And how are we updating our executive leadership or the board of directors about what's happening? Um, an interesting story that I'll mention, and we can talk a little bit more about the technical aspects after, is um, often organizations uh, panic and over-communicate to uh, board or executive leadership, where when you over-communicate things that you're not fully certain about, it kind of creates a lot of chaos. I've seen a lot of scenarios where something bad happens, you have a very technical security-minded person who's kind of thinking about the worst case scenario and communicating that as it happens to somebody in an executive position or the board of directors. And often um, you don't want to be in a position where you say, well, we thought this is the bad thing that happened. Mm. We didn't have enough information at the time to, to actually confirm that was the case. And, and it's actually either worse or we're in a better position. So something that I would really recommend that any organization do is partner with a security firm to do a tabletop exercise. Almost every firm will have the capability to deliver this on your behalf. Um, and make sure that you're not just including your technical leadership and your organizational leadership, but folks from marketing, folks from employee communications, uh, folks from investor relations, if you happen to be a public organization, and just run everybody through what would you do in a really terrible scenario like your exchange server was breached and maybe now attackers have all of your emails or they've exfiltrated client data. So tabletop is a really valuable point to start with here, Chris. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, um, I actually have been, I guess, somewhat involved in some of those recently. Um, and it, it is, it is eye opening because, you know, you can have all of the, the DR, strategy down right you can have all of this like okay well we we know we can restore this backup at this time and we can get this much data back but when you when you kind of dropped in this malware type scenario potentially or or a, a sort of some sort of breach situation it gets it gets interesting and, and I, I like what you said like it's not it's not just a technical the you know the technical team that need to be involved in this right because sometimes it's the it's the the marketing person who kind of looks at things from an angle that you wouldn't consider as a technical person right as well and they ask a question and you're like that's the most bizarre thing i've ever th you know that's that anyone's ever said but it actually is awesomely applicable to the situation uh, and helps us out so um i i yeah that's that's good so tabletop tabletop exercises are, are sort of a, a really good way to kind of run through um i guess any number of different uh, scenarios to to try and help um, kind of simulate uh, where, where we are with this. Um, you mentioned sort of press and investor relations. I think that's, again, I think that's that's sort of a, a really important thing. I think at, at this point in time, like companies, um, the reputation is 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 kind of hurt um, significantly, right? And, and, and you know, I won't I won't mention names, but there've been some incidents in the, in the, you know in recent history here where you know large orgs have been have had some some issues and 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 their first sort of um, 
way they handle it is deny, deny, deny until eventually there's just like, you know, so much irrefutable proof, right? Now, to me, that's not necessarily the type of org I want to be doing business with, right? When, when, when deny is the first or, you know, and, and so I think it's a very interesting topic of like, make sure that the right people are communicating the right message um, at the right time instead of just okay, well, let's over-communicate or let's, you know, I think that's, yeah, te technical people definitely can do that, can't they? Yes. Yes. So, a, a, another thing that I've seen, I'm, I'm sorry, Chris, I just wanted to mention with this deny, deny, deny thing is um, it, often organizations have uh, an immense amount of trust in their own visibility and their own capability to have detected something bad happening. So when there is potential press around, hey, somehow user data was leaked or was stolen or is now available on the quote unquote dark web, if organizations haven't seen that before, there's the often kind of um, objective to just reassure clients that everything seems to be okay. But often what you find is that either you don't have the right visibility and, and you, you actually have been breached and, and you've missed mm -hmm. that, or it could be a partner whom you had shared that data with that actually had a, a business purpose for hosting that data and holding that data. You can't just blanket say, hey, this nothing happened. This is not us. It's, it's fake. I think th that's the reaction of a lot of organizations when they haven't seen anything internally to identify that that data may have been leaked and not, not something as loud as like a ransomware. Um, attack right. where every screen across your organization turns black yeah. and there's a big ransomware message. Sometimes yeah. that doesn't happen. Sometimes it's a partner. Sometimes it's a vendor. So I think having the the response capabilities internally at the marketing and you know like kind of press level to say, hey, we we are investigating this, mm -hmm. and we will re we will communicate with customers at this cadence as we know more. I think that that kind of um, attitude is important. You cannot assume that you're secure just because you didn't get an alert about it or you mm -hmm. didn't see a ransomware pop-up screen or the bad guys didn't email you. So, and I think that that raises a very interesting sort of question though, right? Is like, how do I even know that something's gone wrong? Because, you know, like you mentioned, there are so many different types of, of you know, breaches even where, um, you know, if they're doing their job well, you know, the bad actor, they, they're not alerting you to the fact that they're, that they're there because they want to go and sell that, that, you know, that, that access to someone else. Right. Um, so, so how do I, I mean, for one, how do I even know, and should my plan include, um, some sort of consensus, right? Like a go, no go, you know, for, for a, for a change or a project, like some sort of consensus that says, okay, well, we, if we suspect something, but there are three indicators, then we'll communicate. But if we suspect something and there's one indicator, then we won't communicate until we find two more indicators. Do you know what I mean? Is, is there some sort of like threshold at which you should actually start taking this like super seriously? Actually, before Fran answers that, let me throw something in there. And uh, I want to approach this from a, a doctrinal point of view. And when we talk security doctrine and the favorite on everyone's lips at the moment is zero trust which says we assume breach and we guard against or we attempt to guard against long-running attacks so that means i have an actor at least one party maybe multiple competing parties in my infrastructure which uh, that was called out to me in a um uh, somebody else's retail customer, not mine, where they had two sets of attackers actually competing for uh, resources in, in that customer. So one of them had a, a shadow DC set up and the other hacker group was actually trying to compete for that same resource. And this was found out because a security firm said, can we do a, a, a POC and uh, can we can we just look at some stuff? And they found all these people making changes that no one was aware of. So to come back to my, my, my question from, from my ramble, if we go and look at the premise of, I've got long running attacks in my infrastructure because I'm assuming breach. 
And Chris, you, you're going down the road of, I think there's something there, right? But if we take a step back and say, well, I'm assuming breach, what do I do if I find this long running attack? And we know that groups like Lapsus have been documented to have not just one vector, but two or three or four or five, and they'll pull on one of the vectors. And if you close that one off, there's, there's others. So this is kind of like Cold War type stuff, right? Where I'm, I'm finding a vector. Does that mean, well, what does it mean? What do I do now? I find a long running attack. I found an actor in my infrastructure. And then that goes on to Chris's question of, well, now I've got multiple things, or maybe I've got a singular thing. So I want to go back and, and ask the question from the doctrinal point of view. So I believe in zero trust. I assume breach. I assume long running attack. So I use clever folks like Fran to go and look for these people. Now I find a, a mole, a rat, a mouse in my infrastructure, whatever the, the, the desired term is that doesn't offend someone. What do I do now? Yeah, I think uh, this is often a, an area where I've seen a lot of failure. And, and what I mean by that is um, there are organizations who don't have well-prepared, tested, simulated at attack scenarios like incident response plans, where the answer is immediately to, um, okay, blow away that system, let's rebuild, let's you know make sure that whatever systems we think were impacted uh, are segregated from the network. And I think that this is where you need guidance from an expert, be it somebody on your existing staff or truly ideally an, an external party who whose job has been to respond to incident response engagements and respond to attackers. Because often um, what you'll see is that your actions will tip off the attacker and they will use that tip off to actually um, mm -hmm. activate contingencies that they likely have. I'll give you a really concrete example from, from my personal Please. experience. I worked at a, at a company that did attack stuff um, on behalf of clients to test their security response capabilities. And um, often we would look for indicators that we have been caught. And before that happened, we would often pre-stage access uh, in a way that's gonna be very difficult for the organization to identify. So as an example, um, depending on the, the tier of actor that you're responding against, sometimes those threat actors have broken into like your printer and put malware on your printer and made it call back to them one time a month. So that if everything happens to go awry and you try to eradicate as much as possible um, in a month or in however long since that last thing checked in, they're going to get access again. So that mm -hmm. eradication part is, is really tough. Uh, and, and often attackers are monitoring how you as an organization are responding. So it's important to have um, an incident response plan and, and ideally a partner who can come in and gather as much information as possible about the potential scope of the compromise prior to taking action. Sometime taking that domain controller uh, offline or just turning off all of your network access, which I've seen multiple times, just like turn off the internet is not the best approach because mm -hmm. potentially the scope of the attack is limited. And now you're hurting your business by limiting all, all internet access and potentially turning off your website. Um, and sometimes that will tip off an attacker to actually retaliate immediately. We have seen that um, threat actors who are, are ransomware focused, as soon as they're caught, uh, maybe they didn't accomplish all of their objectives. Maybe they didn't turn off every backup. Maybe they didn't steal all the data that they wanted. But like you caught them, they're just gonna they're gonna go ahead and and turn on the ransomware right away uh, mm -hmm. to at least cause some damage. So I think it's a really difficult balance between when do I respond and how do I respond. And often, what you need to do as an as a as a security professional or as an IT professional is understand that you need to have as much information as possible about what has occurred before you take any action. Before you communicate to the press that, oh, actually, yes, we've been breached and all of this data was stolen. Or worse yet, hey, we've been breached and the impact of the breach is this. And then two weeks later, 
where three days later, you have to go back and say, hey, just kidding. It wasn't 20% of our client base. It was 100% of our client base and all of the credit card data is gone. So I think understanding when you have enough information to act is often really hard because in security or like, you know, breach situations, um, organizations tend to overreact and security people within these organizations tend to just take the most immediate action they can think of that will remedy the problem immediately, even if that will potentially cause more pain for the business uh, down the line. So I think really it's all about knowing when you have enough information to act. And that is often subjective and, and requires some experience, right? Like, have I ever as an incident responder dealt with this attack group before? Do I understand what is their modus operandi? Like, how do they accomplish their objectives? Do I, as an, as an incident responder, understand that? And then I can go look at what I've seen in the past to say, oh, yeah, this group typically also stages access um, on an exchange server or will continue to have access via a employee account or something they created in Azure AD. Uh, so I think working with a partner who has experience responding to things like this in the past who has experience understanding when they know that they have enough information and who ideally also understands how attackers attack is, is really, really important. Um, to make sure like you know- a really hard problem to solve, right? Yeah, yeah, in, indeed. It's, it's hard to make these calls as an incident responder. Um, mm-hmm. But o- ultimately what, what typically happen in, in these scenarios is that all you're doing is kind of like continuously pulling threads. Right. It's like, okay, there's a shadow DC or somebody's making changes to my active directory infrastructure that I've I've never seen before. Where are they doing that from? How did they get access to the account? Who created the account? When was that created? Where was it created from? And then you get to the last part and the last, you just kind of work backwards until you have as complete as picture as possible. Like literally from, Hey, this bad thing happened to, how do they even get into our environment in the first place? Where did they move to? Have they set up any persistence mechanisms? So I think that that's the really hard part um, for incident responders. But I, I will say that the, the one kind of advantage that we as defenders or blue guys, uh, blue, blue teamers have is that these attackers often have very established and successful patterns that they will use over and over. Um, I mean, some of these attackers, ransomware operators, um, they literally have like playbooks for like, what do you do if you're here? And like, how do you um, find more data? Or like, what's your next step? Because some of these guys are like new hackers that they pulled off the street or that they hired like two weeks ago and they need them to be effective to, to steal your data and ransom your organization. So these guys have playbooks. These guys have, kind of processes that they follow, just like any organization. Uh, And if you're able to kind of discern what that has has been in the past, it informs you on how you should act in the future. So that's why also there's a lot of value in working with an an incident response organization because they may have seen exactly this threat actor in the past. They may have seen this attackers, they may know what they're doing, they may know their tooling. and they can they can use that to help you. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a good point, right? Because I think a lot of folks kind of listening to this might go, well, hang on, like we have some really smart people, you know, uh, blue team is on our on our team, and why would we need to work with a partner? It's exactly that, right? Is your business um, is making widgets or selling dog food or whatever it is? It's yeah. not security research, and. Um, yes, you may have those really smart people on, on you know, on, on the team, but do they have access to that latest bit of research that, you know, other folks are just doing? That's what they do is they, they, they research these sort of tactics um, and, and how these folks are, you know, how operating and they, they're able to use that and um, to, I guess, the advantage of, of being able to defend. Right. So that's 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 a really good point. I think that's definitely worth sort of echoing. Um, Brent. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say was uh, just on that as well is um, you want to make sure, I guess, that you have these agreements and, and, and sort of structures in place 
before you need to use them, right? Because the last thing you want to do is have something sort of go down and then all of a sudden now you're getting on the phone to, you know, every consulting firm in the, you know, in the phone book uh, or on Google or, or what have you trying to trying to get someone to help you. And, and you know, professional services is a, a very interesting game. We've, we've all been there, like resourcing and staffing and all of that kind of stuff is difficult, right? Um, and you want to make sure that you, I guess, have some sort of response, you know, timeline and, and, and capabilities in place before something actually goes wrong so that you can get on that pretty quickly because, you know, you, you, time really is important. Yeah, I, I'll tell you that often um, what organizations don't consider um, are the broadly impactful attacks or campaigns where everybody's calling their incident response provider at that time. So think mm -hmm. like um, SolarWinds. SolarWinds was an example of anybody who had SolarWinds was mm -hmm. calling us. Uh, and mm -hmm. when you're a firm looking to respond to like broadly impactful, like worldwide events, um, we're gonna make sure that we're allocating our resources to people whom we have existing like service level agreements with or response mm -hmm. engagement agreements with. And, and if you call us in the middle of SolarWinds or log4j or all these other mm -hmm. things that are like broadly impactful around the world it may just be like sorry you know we're on the phone with everybody else who has this thing or who's responding to this thing uh, mm -hmm. and often what you'll find is that almost every firm you call who you can find quickly is going to tell you the same thing it's like sorry we're we're, we're helping everybody else we're helping all of our clients who have pre-existing agreements mm -hmm. so i think and it's, it, it sorry go ahead I was just going to say it's important to consider the fact that you could be in a position where you are one of hundreds of thousands of organizations who are experiencing the same thing at that very same moment. Mm. I was going to say um, I'm I'm reminded also of of kind of the chaos that that happened with the F5 um, vulnerability from like a couple of years ago, right? And that was that didn't even just hit sort of incident response companies that hit anyone who had any F5 resources and anyone who had any F5 skill was kind of you know their phones were ringing off the hook at that point because how many people use that five uh, it was it was kind of crazy so that's a really good uh, good point made um so we talked about uh kind of readiness and and thinking about these things planning it through tabletop exercises and 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 just understanding knowing what to do who does what all of those types of things but we also have been talking about this sort of um you know any incident response and and i guess that term can be Kind of loosely interpreted to mean like a few things right i mean it could mean a, an actual sort of engagement of some sort it could mean probably a a plan or a, a run book of what to do um where what's the what's the best place sort of fundamental place to start when you when you're thinking about incident response fran is it is it that sort of that that run book of here are here are the things that we want to do if we get to this sort of situation yeah i i think probably the first place that I would start is who's involved and how. So who are you going to call in a war room and make sure that they're available to you? And how are you going to reach them? If it's the middle of the night, if it's a weekend, if it's a holiday, that's kind of the most important, right? So you, you need to know who's involved in the decision-making and communication process and who is leading the technical aspects who's leading the potential like you know pr aspects who's the business decision maker who's making decisions about the business rather than just the technical decisions so i think who is engaged and who's involved is where you should start that's what you need to do because you don't want to be in the middle of a incident and, and trying to figure out like oh man who do we call who's familiar with what they should communicate or what they shouldn't communicate who who's going to join this this bridge and immediately start messaging everybody on their team like oh my god we're hacked it's the end of the world everything is done mm -hmm. like those are the types of things that you want to figure out first mm -hmm. and you probably want to have the the sort of um the uh i guess the arrangements or the uh, sort of in place right set the right precedence as far as communication of of the incident even internally right how much can and should be said and communicated um you know and i'm and i'm thinking about 
you know, very often one of the big things that we, we always recommend whenever I do, you know, uh, some sort of security assessment is a break glass account, right? Is um, or, or multiple break glass accounts that can't um, be affected by, you know, a federation outage or an MFA outage or something like that, right? We've seen, we've all seen that happen. But the very next question to that is, well, you've got these break glass accounts. Who has the credentials? Who has the password to that thing, right? Is it in a safe? Well, who has the key to that safe? And it's so funny how like you get down the chain and you go, do you, uh, do you have a break glass account? Yes, we do. We have multiple break glass accounts and they're, you know, cloud only account. And then you go, okay, well, where are those credentials kept? Well, I know the password in my head or it's in my password vault. I'm like, okay, well, can other folks get to that? Uh, no. Well, so what happens if you're playing golf or you're, you know, in the Bahamas on some, you know, <laughs> cruise and your phone doesn't work like that's and so you kind of have to think through all of those points of failure when it comes to some of these things, because, um, you know, uh, when when things really happen, sometimes there isn't uh, there isn't time to go and wake the guy up who's in the Bahamas. Like, it's just weird. Uh, yeah, I think um, having having information about who has access to what data and what tools and what mm -hmm. accounts is really critical. Um, in the scenario that you described, having a shared password vault um, with a set of individuals who have access becomes really, really important, right? So as an example, at the organization I work at, uh, there are three people who have access to a break glass account that's in a separate password vault that's separate from all of our other um, infrastructure. And we know who those people are. Uh, and those people happen to be in different parts of the world in different time zones so that we're not in a position where everybody's on holiday, everybody's out playing golf. Mm -hmm. However, I will say that then you have to consider uh, what happens when your password vault is compromised. Um, the unfortunate reality is if, if you look at recent breaches and I, I'll name it, this is public, um, Uber had a, a fairly significant breach by the Lapis gang that you mentioned earlier. And what happened is they broke in and they found administrative credentials to their password vault. Well, guess what? Their password vault had admin access to AWS and Azure and Slack and email and Dropbox and everything. So while I'm a huge fan of like these shared password vault solutions and they're important and they're necessary, uh, you should also kind of consider what happens when the bad guys have access to every credential that's in mm. my admin shared password vault and, and how do you so deal with that? What do, do you do? Recover? Yeah. So what do you yeah. do? Yeah, that's, that's a really tough situation. I, I would say, um, you, you probably want a segregated like identity and access management or privileged access management um, set of tools that are separate from anything else the organization may be using. I mean, we've all worked in organizations where there's kind of a shared password vault for IT or for the security team or for the operational team. Maybe all of the like break glass accounts shouldn't be just there. Maybe mm -hmm. you want a backup where only two people in the company have access to this other password vault solution. Maybe the passwords are written down on a piece of paper in a fire safe in the CISOs or the CIOs or the CTO's office. Uh, and hopefully the CTO is not the only one with a key and a combination. So I think um, this is where low tech also comes in very handy, right? Yes. Like. You, you want an account where the only place it's stored is in the fire safe uh, in, a, in a really secure location where if the building burns down and you're, you're dealing with an incident response engagement at the same time, that fire safe is going to survive and you're going to be able to, to get to that account. Um, <laughs> that, that, I, that would be a very bad day if that actually transpired. I was going to ask you about um, password vaults and, and, and you kind of already alluded to this, right? I think it's pretty common... Um, for IT teams or tech teams to have some sort of shared thing. And it, I mean, it varies, um, you know, sometimes it's self-hosted, sometimes they it's cloud hosted, et cetera. What, what's your experience with like organizations kind of rolling out access to a shared vault to all of their employees? 
uh, I'd be very curious, and both this be a question to both of you guys, right? Because I've, you know, uh, it's in, it's interesting. I've, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of password vaults, and you know, with the caveats that you mentioned, Fran. Um, but I've really only ever seen one company, uh, maybe maybe two, where when you're a, 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 you know, a new starter on your first day, and you get your, you know, your mailbox and and your email and your Teams account, you also get enrolled into the, you know, the the company. Um, password uh, manager solution and whatever whichever one it is right so so you have your personal vault that you can store stuff in but then you also have access to shared vaults where you know important stuff departmental stuff um, so that these things aren't stored in spreadsheets I don't think that that's something that is that I've come across very often I mean Nick what are you seeing with with um, you know not necessarily your customers but what are you seeing generally with with organizations are they adopting things like this? I, I see a myriad, mirage, a myriad of, of things that are out there. And the, the, um, the shared password thing is super popular. I do find that, uh, to, to Fran's example, um, everyone in IT uses the same vault. They're pretty blase about it. Hmm. It's like, we have this mechanism we share the password over text, WhatsApp, mm. Signal, and we don't consider that a mobile phone could be compromised and or email could be compromised and, and passwords for the vault are freely communicated. And mm. and so sometimes I think, why, why do we bother with this type of thing? And it goes back to one of the things that Fran was saying earlier, which I'm going to infer to as security culture. There's a lack of security culture mm. in organizations where there's not only a lack of cyber incident response or even a thought about it, but unless there's been a breach and to our last interview where we recorded Sachin the CISO, he suffered a significant breach. And after that, his organization was willing to spend the kind of money it took to actually roll out not only tools, but also disciplines and have the kind of thing, accountability thinking that goes with everyone is accountable for security. And using his example, he had to write the speech for the CEO who had to appear on national television. That's a lot of pressure. And that mm. buys you a lot of buy-in from the business mm. around security. I also want to add, just because I can and I'm soapboxing, that <laughs> often security is an IT problem. It's not a business problem. So it's like, well, that's Fran's problem. He'll fix that. And it's not a, well, as an organization, we have the following stance towards security and we are prepared in the following manner. It's more like a, a case of, well, we hope nothing ever happens and it's a line item in our security expenditure. Mm -hmm. And I, I see some of my customers are amazingly well prepared. Those are the ones that tend to have the highest risk items. So people with nuclear reactors and they, they manufacture things like oil and that type of thing and they understand what could happen if an attacker would come in and pollute a bay or a valley or a um, an entire human settlement somewhere in a part of the world and and what's the the negative impact of a a pipeline breach others it's you know there's extremes that well we hope nothing ever happens is is a lot of what i see out there so i see i see a mixture of it chris what a, i don't think there's a clear standard no and that and that's fair but i also think so like in my mind we're not we're not only at risk in a business context right when we you know our everyday kind of business lives and the way that we we operate but i also feel like we're becoming more and more um at risk in our personal lives as well because we also use technology in our personal lives and you know it's interesting i mean if you take a look at look around like i think i think us on the call and Fran, I, you know, I've known you long enough. I, I know the type of stuff that you, you know, how you set up your personal laptops and, and things like that, right? I know that you're super security conscious. Um, but I, I think that we've been working in this sort of space for long enough where we're familiar with password vaults and multi-factor auth and all of these things. But I think general, like most Joe average people 
will only turn on multi-factor on something personal if it's forced, right? If Google uh, or Twitter or whoever forces MFA on your account, then you're going to, you'll put up with it. You're going to complain about it every time, but you'll put up with it, right? It's not like a something you'd go willingly do. And I think password managers are the same thing. Like, I feel like the way we get, uh, you know, people to be using password managers more more often and the associated benefits of that, you know, of of unique, long, difficult to remember passwords, right? That are that 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 are for every site that they visit. The way we get people to that point is by giving them the culture of, hey, this is a password manager. You're going to use it in your job every day, and it's going to become second nature to you. So that when you you know leave the office, you're gonna you're gonna start doing it. I, and I'm sure you guys have this, and I'm sure everyone who listens is listening to this can relate to this problem. You have parents who are now starting to use technology and you have to remember every single password that, that they, you know, for their stuff. Like my dad doesn't care about the password. No, I, he just wants it to work, right? And every time I, 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 I see him and I look at his device, there's a new email account or a new something. So why do you have four email accounts now? Well, I needed this thing and I couldn't remember the password for the other one, so I just used and created a new one. And it's that easy, right? And I, um, not too long ago, I um, I did something for my mother-in-law. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was doing something on her phone. And I thought, you know what? Like, whenever I need a password, she's got a little notebook and she opens it up and she goes, oh, here, I think it's this one. And she gives me the password. And, and you know, I, I think that's pretty common, right? That's perfect. Said, you know, that's actually yeah. perfect. Right, right. I, I'm totally good with that. Um, and I said, well, I think, uh, how about we, uh, let's, let's kind of modernize this, right? And I installed a uh, Bitwarden on her phone. And I said, well, from now on, like you're, you're, you know, if you, if you need the passwords for things like for, for this thing I've set up or that thing I've set up, it's in there. And I showed her how to get into it. And, and she was like, oh, this is really cool. It's like my little notebook, but on my phone. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> so I, yeah, that, and that's what the, the reason I asked about the password manager thing, right? Cause I feel like we'll get there folks will start being a little bit more responsible with these things once they become more integrated into their their everyday life and it's not just something that is for the tech people right because i think that's right now that's where everyone sort of sees it i think that um first of all i agree i think that as uh you know i'm i'm in the cybersecurity field and that's been my entire career i think our job within cybersecurity is to make this stuff so easy that users don't even really have to think about it. Um, what I mean by that is if you look at some of the work that companies like Apple and Microsoft and even Google have done to integrate this like password management best practice stuff into the core operating system or into their browsers or into whatever, that's a huge step forward for a very, very large percentage of people. So I, I, you know, people in my family, my loved ones, they don't even know that their passwords are all stored in iCloud in the like passwords feature. But guess what? Safari and their phone encourages them to have auto-created passwords that they don't have to remember. And mm -hmm. they're encrypted with their face and their password to iCloud or the same thing with Chrome. I, I, I think that's the job of, of kind of mm -hmm. the tech companies that we need to make it so ubiquitous and easy that ideally users don't even have to think about where the, this is happening. Um, mm. I, I also think that, you know, to, to be, to be frank with you example with the notebook, uh, my mom does the same thing. And, and to be honest, um, that is going to be a much easier thing than, um, ever showing her Bitwarden or how to like <laughs> even get to passwords on her iPad or, or what have right. you. Uh, and, and you have to consider like, that our threat model and, and what we're doing as cybersecurity people or as tech people mm. is going to be different than like your grandparents and your grandparents having a notebook that's like in a drawer that has all of their passwords. That's okay. Like mm. that's it. That's okay. Sure. Somebody could break in and now they have access to all their email, but like if somebody breaks in, they're not looking for the notebook with the passwords. They're looking for the TV or the jewelry or, or what have mm. you. So I, I, I think it's just like, that's okay. Having a notebook with your passwords, cool. That's really good. At least they're, you know, separate and they're likely mm. somewhat unique for a lot of these somewhat accounts. And, and they're <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. I think, 
I think we're hopefully we're starting to make some inroads in the whole like unique passwords for everything you use kind of wall, right? I, I mean, I I don't know. Excuse me, how commonplace it is yet uh, anymore still, but at least everyone in my circle I think understands now the <laughs> the danger of of reusing uh, credentials across things, and you know, um, not everyone is as paranoid as I am. I guess that's the other thing. Although compared to Fran, I am I. Not that you're paranoid, friend. I I I don't want to I don't want to label you as paranoid. I just uh, like I said, I I, I really enjoy uh, kind of watching you do things sometimes because um, you just you, yeah. But but again, you know, you have these fascinating stories about um, you know printer drivers and mm. all the the things right that that you know I guess also help kind of inform that uh, that behavior. So. I'd like to throw something in there to all the the folks listening to the show who are in any way customer facing. And it's because a challenge came to me last week when I was hanging with the Microsoft Cyber Incident Response Team. A really clever bunch of people that do the part of Dart, they do really interesting things, they ask really hard questions to people with uh, uh, interesting problems in the middle of breach. And one of the folks who does this for a living asked us and it was quite literally a room of us at a, a Microsoft security summit. And you asked us, so who of you is customer facing? And obviously everyone put up their hands in the room. So he said, so how many of you have a separate machine to connect your customer's network with that's hardened and locked down? No one put their hand up. Hmm. He said, so you're willing to take a breach from one customer to another across your soft defaulted machine and drag it around with you and expose potentially every customer that you have and you just don't know. And we thought, wow, that's a bit of a breathtaking scenario. And I'd like to get Fran's input on that because I see the eyebrows up. I see you nodding in that sageful, meaningful way. So Fran, microphone over to you. Yeah, I think, um, look, I, I, I think it's kind of unfair to expect people who aren't in cybersecurity to like go through the hassle of having a separate machine per client. I think you have to consider the security implications of that. So like as an example, where I work, um, all of the client access goes through segregated jump devices that we control, we manage. Uh, we're making sure that like, pivoting from one client to another is not possible. But from an incident response perspective as, as a like incident response consultant, it's actually normal to have what you call like your battlefield laptop. Like you're literally traveling with like your mm. corporate laptop and then you're traveling with your battlefield laptop. And that mm. battlefield laptop is what you're plugging into the client environment. That's how you're accessing whatever client tools they have. And guess what? At the end of that battlefield engagement, you're probably imaging the hard drive of that laptop and then wiping it so that the next call you get, you're hopefully not dragging along all that malware. I, I think that's a fair expectation for, mm -hmm. for like incident response engineers and, and incident responders. I don't think mm -hmm. that's a fair expectation for like a general like IT or cloud consultant. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think it's something that you have to consider. I think potentially as an as an organization if you're doing a lot of consulting and this is a concern it should be at some level you need to consider how your users and your employees are accessing client infrastructure and what the risk of that is that's fair fair comment thank you yeah no i i, I like that i mean and especially you know i mean i'm a consultant i um work with different customers in different locations uh now that said, I, you know, if I, if I just think back to like my, my, even my last three engagements, right, the, well, two engagements this year, but um, I've not used the same machine on any of those environments because one customer mandated, you know, the use of one of their assets, which, which, I, which I'm always fine with, except when it's Windows. Um, um, that's the only thing. Like, I'm I'm happy to use your machine. I don't really mind what hardware it is, as long as like, oh, can can you just give me another? And I'm actually like, you know, and I and I hate to say this, but I'm really at this point now that I I, I tried. I've I've recently tried again to to kind of use Windows 11 and and actually get 
back into using Windows and being just more comfortable with it. Um, and I'm just like, no, I, I, like I would literally rather use Ubuntu, right? If I couldn't use my Mac, I'd rather use some flavor of Linux than, than go, than use Windows. And it, it, it hurts. It breaks my heart to say that, right? And I'm sure there's so many people listening to this now going, what are you talking about? This is supposed to be a Microsoft aligned podcast and you're, you're talking about using Ubuntu. And I'm like, I, I get it. Like, I love all the Microsoft stuff. I just, Windows just is, I, I don't know. We have a love hate relationship, I guess, is the thing. <laughs> so good point um, though, Nick, I think that. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Chris, please. No, I'm done. That's it. <laughs> I, I was just going to mention that another thing that's important to consider in this incident response thing is um, what I've seen a lot of, unfortunately, is that the, the security tools that the security team is using um, may be authenticating or hosted on the same infrastructure, um, like Active Directory infrastructure, that may be the subject of a breach, right? So as, as an example, I'll tell you that um, as an attacker in that position, I, I've been in a place where I can literally just say, oh, weird. So like people in this group have access to this tool that's like triggering the alerts about what I'm doing. So I could just potentially lock them out of that tool um, or I can give myself an account and watch what they're doing and what they've found about me. And, I, and I'll tell you that that um, happens super duper often. Um, so a, a good example of this is, um, speaking of Microsoft, Sentinel released a really cool feature where when there's an incident, you can start a Teams channel with like whoever you think you need to engage in order to like support responding to that incident that's been detected by Microsoft Sentinel. Um, I've been an attacker and we have seen attackers who have access to Teams, who have access to Azure AD and can just grant themselves access to your incident command room. Um, I, I've, I've literally dialed into an incident response bridge where people were trying to respond to the incident that I was causing and people would, people paused and were like, hey, who just joined? And 30 seconds later, everybody just started talking again because it was an awkward pause and I didn't answer and they just assumed it was fine. So like, I, I think when, when it comes to incident response, you have to consider like, hey, yeah, maybe I wanna use Teams. Is that the best place to have this discussion? Could the attacker have access to Teams? Could they be dialed into my WebEx bridge? So it's... That is, that is, that is the story of the, uh, of the episode for sure. Um, that... <laughs> Who just joined? I have to tell you though, Chris, I, I saw uh, this being documented a bunch of times on the Microsoft security blog and they, they talked about how attackers join incident response calls to either gain more information on how the security um, organization responds or the, how the organi organization responds to security incident or to join and ridicule <laughs> the responders and and so it's 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 like wow you know when 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 you've got that going on there's a lot going on yeah wow I, i'll wrap it up with the ir part which is also an, another thing that's probably really important um is knowing what tools you have and knowing who knows how to use them and making sure that people know how to use them appropriately um I, i'll give you another really good story this wasn't me personally but it was it, it was a colleague um there was a uh, an engagement where we had accomplished our objective and the client was like, we didn't detect anything. Can you turn the heat up? Like, can, like, can you just like start getting progressively louder until like my team responds and identifies it, which is, which is interesting. Like at what threshold will you actually catch me? Um, and it got to the point where my colleague was on a, a, a security person's laptop like popping up boxes, like like literally diagrams or like uh, sorry dialogues, and this responder was like just moving them out of the way as they were like frantically googling how to use the tools that they had in order to respond to this. So something that's really important too is when you're in the middle of an engagement or like in the middle of an, an incident response kind of scenario, 
you need to know that your people or the company that you've hired know how to use your tools um, and aren't going to be like frantically Googling how to do X, Y, Z in the middle of that, that potential issue. Um, I'll also tell you that in, in the scenario where the like security person was literally having dialogues pop up in their computer um, and they were just like moving them away, this tunnel vision problem is something that is very, very real during a high pressure incident response type scenario where people are just so tunnel visioned that they will literally ignore a pop-up that says, I'm on your computer watching you uh, because they're just trying to get to like Google and like frantically figure it out. So I think it's another thing that I would recommend is, is kind of have somebody who's responsible for just coordinating and, and is kind of understanding what people are focusing on and are saying like, Hey, I saw this really weird thing on your computer or on this server. Who is available to go look at that? With it can't be just like the one person can't be the only person responding. Mm-hmm. There there should be a an incident commander who's responsible for guiding and directing who's doing what so that that tunnel vision is not a huge problem for an individual person. And then another thing that I'll mention is that you need an incident commander who's not actually doing the technical response in the incident. They need to be the people communicating with the executives, with the, with the PR people who are communicating with potentially your internal users. Um, so, so this like high pressure scenario, I'm literally going to ignore pop-ups on my computer. It sounds ridiculous. And, and it sounds like I'm making fun of the responder. I'm not, it's just the reality of the situation where, if you've never been through one of these before, you're probably going to respond badly. So even if you have a really well-prepared security team, if they've never gone through an incident, they're probably going to respond inappropriately. Not, not because they're bad at their job, not because you know they're not well-trained enough. It's just because you're in the middle of an incident and and things are going to happen and you're going to get a thousand rapid fire questions from your technical leadership and your exec leadership. It's probably better to have a firm who's done this before, who can come in with a a calm, you know, pair of eyes and say, okay, I can help you respond. Don't freak out. Don't ignore the pop-ups on your computer. Don't ignore the person who joined the bridge. That, that kind of somebody who's just been through this a lot, and can respond calmly and appropriately is really important. I think that's a that's a really good sort of um, bit of advice to to kind of wrap up uh, to wrap up the show. I think a lot of that will come from um, practice too, right? So so running those tabletop exercises, having that rapid fire, I think is is helpful. And um, sometimes those tabletop exercises can can get really interesting as well. So yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a really good way to sort of try and get um, as prepared as, as possible. Um, Fran, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug um, or um, is there any, any cool new uh, <laughs> yeah, a research paper or anything like that that you've been involved with that you, you, you'd like to get some eyes on or, or you know, anything like that? I'd, I'd love to say that there was, but unfortunately my job is to... <laughs> to manage the people who do the cool work. I just, you know, sit jealously on the side doing <laughs> budget stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would just say my Twitter is uh, on on the screen. It's F-R-A-N-C-I-S-C-K-R-S, Franciscus, ridiculous name I know. Um, and if you ever have any questions about this, uh, I, I'm not here to plug the company I work for. I'm happy to help you and give you advice, please, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I love talking about this stuff and would love to get questions or, or people reaching out for advice. That's all I got. That's excellent. And and we really appreciate you coming on and, and mm, kind of having a fun chat with us. It's always, always, uh, always great to have you. And hopefully we can have you on uh, again. Thank you very much for having me. This is always a blast. I really appreciate it, Chris and Nick. Hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, and happy... Thanksgiving, I guess, to uh, all the American listeners, but uh, probably by the time you listen to this, uh, Thanksgiving will have 
passed by a few weeks, but uh, and the least... turkey would have been digested <laughs> exactly. Uh, maybe, I hope it was but... delicious. Yes, happy Thanksgiving to you, Brad. Thank you for for joining us. <laughs> Hey everyone, before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc.